take a nine-inch long metal spike, sharpen one edge to a fine point, add some plastic fins to the other end. You've just invented the most ill-advised and dangerous backyard pastime I'm aware of. That's right, jarts. Jarts, a game where dad would stand at one end and 60 feet away the kids would stand next to a hula hoop on the ground. And dad and his friends would hurl the jart underhand in a giant arc, hopefully landing inside the hula hoop, hopefully not impaling one of the kids. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second after this message from our sponsor. I don't want to talk about jarts, not really. I want to talk about what happens when the jarts land. Many of the jarts, particularly if you're playing with experienced jart players, will land inside the hula hoop, clustered around the target. But some, some will land short, some will go far, some will go left, some will go right. You can't have a center without having edges. And it turns out, if enough people play enough jarts, you will see a normal distribution, a distribution of the jarts landing, 80% or so near the center, 20% or so around the edges. It turns out this normal distribution shows up in lots of places. If we go to the bookstore and count the length of 400 different randomly chosen novels for adults, we'll find the very same distribution. For every novel that's 800 pages long, we'll find one that's 100 pages long, and most of them will be clustered around the center. If I line up 300 kids in gym class, we will find that many of them cluster around the same height, and some are taller than the others, and some are shorter. This distribution happens all the time. You can build a device called the quincunx, where you can take random elements, balls bouncing along, and if you do it often enough, you'll get the normal distribution. So why is this relevant? Why is it relevant to our culture? Well, it turns out, as Rogers has written about, the distribution of who likes new ideas looks exactly like the distribution of jarts. By that I mean that 5 to 10% of the population likes things that are brand new. 5 to 10% of the population wants things to never change. And the rest of the population is in the center. They want what other people want. This is where hit music comes from. This is where we see the growth of technologies happen, that people wait until the technology is proven and accepted and in use, and then they jump on. The middle of this market is so big that it is what drives the value in the long run of corporations, of technologies, of cultural ideas. We get hung up for a couple reasons. The first one is that the media is in a dance with the market and with technology. The media is written for people who like the new, the early adopters, the nerds. 
It's worth mentioning here for just a second. Early adopter, not early adapter. Adapter is what a laggard does, the person at the end of the curve. They adapt to something when they have no choice. Yes, I know you like listening to 8-tracks. I know you wish 8-tracks would last forever. But no, no one's making 8-track players anymore, and your old one just broke. You're going to have to adapt to putting a serious machine into your car. Okay, so back to where we were. There are the early adopters, the nerds, the geeks. They're 10 or 15% of the market in there. There's the middle of the market, and then there are the laggards. Over time, because the media and marketing is complicit, the number of early adopters has increased. 5%, I said a couple minutes ago. Now it's 10 or 15 in many cultures because you can gain in status and influence by becoming an early adopter. What then do the early adopters want? One more thing to note with some urgency. Early adopters are not always early adopters. It depends on the area of culture we're talking about. Some people are early adopters of a style of music or a style of shoes. Some people are early adopters of a meme found on the internet. Sean the non-believer. Sean. Sean. Or a new way to improve their productivity. You get to pick when you're an early adopter what your otaku is, what your focus is, what you're obsessed with. So I'm an early adopter in a lot of areas, but in other areas, I want things to stay exactly the way they were. So what does an early adopter want in his or her area of focus? They want something that's new. They like the promise, the unwrapping of the gift on Christmas morning, what it's like when it's shiny and unsullied and hasn't broken our heart yet. What the early adopter likes is being able to say to everyone who isn't an early adopter, hey, want to see what I got? So on my desk is an actual Star Trek communicator. Kirk Enterprise. Scott here, sir. We're beaming up. Notify transporter room. From the original series, the only one that matters. And it works. I got one when they first came out. Because I could. Because I love it. Because it makes me happy to touch this communicator that, who knows, maybe Bones or Scotty actually could have used if they had built one in time. Next question, what do the masses want? The vast majority of people who aren't bothering to stay on the cutting edge. What they want is something that works. That's a big difference. Jeff Moore figured this out 20 years ago with his book, Crossing the Chasm. What he pointed out was that what technology companies thought they could do wasn't as easy as they expected. What technology companies, what people who try to change the culture, whether it involves silicon or not, what they do is they bring stuff to the early adopters. They say, isn't this cool? Isn't this new? And then they charge them enough money that they can make the thing, they can promote the thing, and they hope that the early adopters will talk about the thing enough that it will move to the next part of the curve, to the masses. And sometimes, rarely, it works. Certainly worked for the iPhone. Everyone has a smartphone now. The first year it came out, a whole bunch of people said it was stupid, it would never work, it was overpriced, I don't want one. 
those very same people have one now. What happened? What happened was, in the first year, people bought it because it was new, not because it worked. They bought it because it was a great gimmick. It was exciting and shiny. And then, as the word spread, the masses got on board with it. Compare this to the movie Memento. It's my memory. Amnesia. No, 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 no. It's different from that. Since my injury, I can't make new memories. Everything fades. If we talk for too long, I'll forget how we started. Next time I see you, I'm not going to remember this conversation. Memento, one of my favorite films, is a movie for early adopters. It got seen by people who were looking for something quirky and new, interesting, thoughtful, but it never crossed the chasm. It didn't become a $400 million movie because the masses weren't looking for what it was delivering. So that, in a nutshell, is where so much goes wrong when someone seeks to change the culture. They come out with something new. The people around them who trust them, the early adopters, get all excited. They fund a third of their Kickstarter. They leave positive comments. They cheer them on. And then, boom, it's gone. It's in the rubbish heap because it didn't cross the chasm. It didn't work. But what I really want to talk about is the shadow that is cast by this curve, by the chasm. It's called the Gartner Hype Cycle. Now, it's not a cycle. It's not truly about hype, but it definitely has Gartner's name on it. What the Gartner Hype Cycle says is that because media companies, culture-changing organizations, and technology are all in a dance, there is now an incentive to talk and talk and talk about the stuff that's new. There are five parts to the curve. It begins with this, the technology trigger. Something is invented. Something is possible. Something is new. I don't know, Bitcoin. There was no Bitcoin, and then there was. Satoshi says, here is Bitcoin. Suddenly, we enter the peak of inflated expectations. So to get from the technology trigger to the peak of inflated expectations, what has to happen? Some startup companies come along. Some first-generation products are made. There's high-priced, customizable stuff that comes onto the marketplace. The early adopters look at this and say, this is the greatest thing ever. The media now says, wow, we have something new to talk about. We can speculate about this. We can break the news. On the basis of this, early adopter financing shows up because they heard about it. They read about it in Esther Dyson's newsletter. They saw it in, in some industry rag. They heard hints of it at a conference. They pile on. Valuations go up. Breathless predictions are made. At the very same time, a whole bunch of people who have seen this before are saying, you know, you can't do that much with Bitcoin. You know, I could buy a pizza with Bitcoin, but why would I? And in response to the naysayers, the true believers have even more to talk about. The media has even more to predict about. And in the case of Bitcoin, they added one more element that made it irresistible. Every day, every minute, there was a price on a Bitcoin. 
and you could track it. $100 a Bitcoin, $500 a Bitcoin. I was at a cocktail party when Bitcoin was at about 800, and I'm talking to some guy about what's going on, and he says, oh yeah, I own 1% of all the Bitcoin in the world. And he wasn't lying. He had bought 1% of all the Bitcoin in the world when it was between 50 and $100 because he had seen the hype cycle before and he knew what was to come. No one's ever sure how far it will go, but he had a hunch and it made him a billionaire. Because what happens is the hype cycle continues because the media wants it to continue. The technology companies want it to continue. And the circle goes around and around and around. And the next thing you know, Bitcoin is selling for $15,000 a coin. But people who have seen this before understand that what's going to happen next is a slide. Almost always, the trough of disillusionment. This is when people say, oh, I can write a story about how it's overhyped. This is when suppliers who had bet on the come start to fail. This is when future rounds of venture capital funding are made by brave venture capitalists who understand that they're getting a bargain. And by the end of the trough, fewer than 5% of the people who will ever be using this idea, whether it's rap music or a new way to trade online, fewer than 5% are actively engaged. It's in this moment at the trough where people who aren't familiar with the hype cycle wash their hands of the whole thing. They say, well, that's dead. These are the people who in 2002 said, the internet, that's dead. Yes, it's true. The entire internet went through the Gartner hype cycle. If you are clever enough to start getting involved in the trough, there's an excellent chance that when the slope of enlightenment, the fourth part of the cycle kicks in, you'll be in the right place at the right time. What happens during the slope of enlightenment? What happens is the media goes away because the media has a really short attention span. What happens is people who are serious about the product, the service, the change they seek to make, they stick with it. They stick with it and they stick with it and they stick with it, quietly building something that actually works, building out the infrastructure, building out the references, building out all the hooks that need to be in place for the people in the middle, the jarts, that land in the center of the circle for those people to say, oh, yeah, this might work, which leads to the fifth thing, if you're lucky enough to get there, and that is the plateau of productivity. The plateau of productivity is when people stop talking about it as a new technology or a new idea, and instead, just use it. So let's think about this from the point of view of an author. What most authors and most book publishers do is they come out with a book. That's the technology trigger. Then they hype it like crazy. That's the peak of inflated expectations. That's today is launch day. That's how do I get on the bestseller list. That's this is the best book ever written. That's what do the reviews say. What did Kirkus say. What did Publishers Weekly say. Oh, look at these reviews. And then, almost always, they walk away. They start working on publishing the next book. They've done their job. But sometimes that's not what happens. Sometimes instead of walking away and letting it fade into obscurity, they do what J.K. Rowling did, which is they stick with it, and they stick with it, 
and they stick with it. And then the idea starts working its way through the Gartner hype cycle. It goes through the trough. Most people aren't paying attention anymore, but you're going to book groups. You're working on the screenplay. You're engaging with other people in the community. You're building up a body of work and a tribe that admires that body of work, and suddenly it becomes part of the culture. Bit by bit by bit, it's a price of being normal, of being in the center of the curve. And so this leads to the third curve, and that curve is called the dip. And the dip is the spot in between the fun part where you begin and the long part where you succeed. It's in that dip that most people quit. Most people quit in the trough. Most people don't have the resources in the bank or in their heart to keep going when no one's paying attention anymore, when the culture apparently has moved on. But soldiering through the dip step by step because you know the dip is going to be there, because you know the dip is part of the cycle, helps you find the resources to get to the other side. So we begin with jarts. We begin with normal. We realize that the dance with the media and marketing leads us to the hype cycle. And the hype cycle points out that there's a trough. And you can't have peaks without a trough. The trough is part of the deal. You can't have a center without the edges. The edges are part of the deal. So what we need to do if we seek to change the culture for the better is not obsess about the hype part of the hype curve. It usually takes care of itself. More hype wouldn't have made it more likely that Bitcoin would have gotten through the trough. It didn't have a hype shortage. What we need, if we're going to bring an innovation forward, is the wherewithal, the reserves, the belief to stick with it long enough to get up the slope of enlightenment. Go make a ruckus. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second to answer your questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As always, we love to hear from you. Summer is a great time to submit a question. All you've got to do is visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. While you're there, check out the show notes. First, a clarification from the Breathe episode. In that episode... I pointed out that the oxygen percentage in Boulder, Colorado, was lower than it is at sea level. That is not true. What's true is there is less oxygen because there's less air. The percentage is the same, but your body is reacting to the fact that there's less air. And the reason there's less air is because you're at a higher altitude, so there's less pressure to keep the air next to you. Thanks for pointing that out. Hi, Seth. This is Chris LeBeau from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, first, I just want to say thank you for all of your work. It means a lot to me. 
Uh, this is about the Breathe episode that you recently put out. And when I think about what you were talking about there, climate change, you're talking about something that can be a fairly sticky topic. Now, understanding a lot of your tribe's principle, which is that you are really working to a group of people that believe strongly, I know also at times there are conversations that, hey, great art or a very impassioned tribe has powerful believers and also people that um, are perhaps very vocal dissenters. But to this episode in particular, you know, talking about climate change, I guess I was just curious when getting into areas that are not just provoke strongly held beliefs, but actual visceral reactions. I was wondering if you tend to think of how to approach that language in positioning in any kind of different or nuanced way. Again, I know this isn't about trying to convince everyone to join in, but I was just wanting to kind of better understand if there are ways that you tend to approach uh, especially dicey issues. Thanks again for all your work. Yes, indeed. This is a juicy problem. It is a problem that has been going on since the days of Galileo and before. It involves anecdotal stories about throwing weights off the Leaning Tower of Pisa, figuring out whether the Earth is round and what it goes around, and on to our present-day problems involving everything from politics to vaccination to the temperature of the Earth and our future as a species. One thing we know for sure If you want to have a fight, having a fight is really easy. Sports radio takes almost no talent to create because all you've got to do on sports radio is challenge the deeply held beliefs of one group of people and give them a chance to argue back and forth about things that cannot be proven. Where it's starting to get tricky in the last hundred years is that the scientific method, the engineer's approach to the world, the thought of testing, measuring, understanding processes means that many of the arguments that people make sound like arguments that are based on that engineer's approach. But while it may sound that way, that's not really what's being said. That what is really being said is, this is something I believe. This is part of my identity. This is who I have chosen to be culturally. And I'm going to dress it up in the uniform of the scientific method. This drives engineers and actual scientists crazy because when they're doing their job properly, the scientific method forces them to change their mind in the face of a better argument. But of course, as we've all experienced, people who are coming from a place of belief cannot change their mind in the face of a better argument, because that's why it's called belief. That belief withstands a better argument, and we get pleasure out of believing it. I am not an engineer or scientist all the time. There are lots of things I believe that I'm sure aren't true, but believing them gives me comfort. So how do we interact with people who believe a set of things that we don't believe, that we, in fact, are sure are getting in the way of progress. Let me highlight three possibilities. The first one is personal experience. One by one, farmers, because farmers are scientists, farmers measure, farmers care about output. One by one, farmers are beginning to acknowledge and embrace the idea 
that the earth is getting warmer and they better do something about it. Because seeing something, experience something, feeling something, it changes the way you encounter the world. So get in a plane, fly east from New York, go tens of thousands of miles, and you will come back to New York from the west. It's pretty hard to do that at the same time that you are sure that the earth is a flat disk. Because experience, building it with your own two hands, seeing it with your own two eyes, experience helps change the way we look at something we haven't previously thought deeply about. The second is the idea that people, including me, don't like to admit that they were wrong. But many people are happy to make a new decision based on new data. That's different, we think. And so if we can give people new data in a new way that is unrelated to the way that they have already built their belief set, it's entirely possible they won't be triggered into a fight, but maybe will decide to make a new decision, which leads to the third and the most powerful one of all. People like us do things like this, that we are hooked on fitting in with the people we choose to fit in with. And so the people who said, I will never wear a miniskirt, suddenly make a new decision based on new data because all their friends are wearing miniskirts. That's a trivial example, but I think you get the idea. And so in public affairs, when the culture begins to change, sometimes it flips fairly quickly. And that's not because we took a hard look at the data. It's because we took a hard look at the people around us. People like us do things like this. Because if we don't do things like this, then we are no longer people like us. And being people like us, that's the definition of culture. And culture is where we find our identity. Thank you for your question. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Who's it for? What's the change you're trying to make and why are you trying to make it? Hey, it's back. The Marketing Seminar, the most effective workshop of its kind, is back. It starts again in June 2019. Here's what people are saying. Be with fellow travelers to find that, those morale boosts, to ask questions and find out that other people resonate with the same questions. That there, there are alternatives to the selfish marketing methods that are out there right now. It's rare to have an opportunity to have people so engaged in a topic who are willing to go on a journey with one another. When you're ready to make things better by making better things, The Marketing Seminar is here to help. Check it out at themarketingseminar.com. We'd love to have you join us. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And 
It sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.